Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. This episode features one of three guests who were part of my weekly hour-long NPR show broadcast over the air every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island where it has broadcast continuously for over 15 years. This show is about dogs, cats, and other creatures who share the planet with us. Please check out my other Pet Talk podcasts at tracyhotchnerpets.com. This show would not be possible without the longtime support of Waruva, the pet food company founded and privately run by David Foreman, who named it after his rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva is a quirky name for a company with whimsical names for the dozens of different cans and pouches of cat food they make. But what sets them apart is how serious David is about high-quality nutrition. They were the first pet food company to use human edible ingredients and process them in the same facilities that make human food, remaining privately owned and run, accountable only to their own high standards. This show is also made possible with the generous support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Bruce Elsie a feline-only veterinarian. He personally created many styles of litter to make sure that even the fussiest cats would not have out-of-litter box problems, the number one reason people abandon their kitties. Dr. Elsie also created his own brand of cat food called Clean Protein, the first dry cat food I can recommend because it's based on the protein found in a cat's natural prey. Dr. Elsie's is also the founding and continuing sponsor of my New York Cat Film Festival of which I am the founder and director along with the annual New York Dog Film Festival, which premiere in New York City every October and then travel the USA and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. Go to dogfilmfestival.com and catfilmfestival.com to find out when we'll be where. It is such a treat and a delight to discover that Dr. Ian Dunbar is back again, the master dog trainer, the Eminence Squeeze, the gray beard of dog training. He's just sort of said enough people, enough you just are missing the point and barking up the wrong tree. And he's written a book called Barking Up the Right Tree, The Science and Practice of Positive Dog Training. Ian, it is so wonderful to have you back. And I feel your pain. I feel your pain all these many decades where you have been the dog trainer with the best ideas and they've never wavered from your good ideas. And you see all this noise and fuss and bother all around you and you're thinking, what are you people doing with your dogs? It's great that you then took the time and the energy and the passion that you have and turned it into this absolutely beautiful book. I can't imagine you aren't very proud of it. Um, I am. And um, I was actually very proud of my very positive attitude. Yes. That it, uh, it's barking up the right tree. But I think um, so often we forget why things were so wonderful when they were introduced to like off-lease training, puppy training, lure reward training, um, uh, shaping. And then we just use them without a thought to their like magic or magnificence. And so I, I wrote the book to say, here's what I think. I look at, uh, I think, six different reward training techniques. And pretty much I go through their pros and cons in terms of um, their ease, speed, effectiveness, 
Um, given that, of course, it's enjoyable. I mean, this is reward training, right. so I didn't even consider the emotional side of it for dogs or people. But I, I think this is now a great opportunity again um, for dog training to radically change and resurrect some of the things we've forgotten along the way, like using our voice, quantifying what we're doing, you know, and and providing proof of training and proof of the speed of training. So I'm really very positive about it. And I love the book. It was grueling um, editing it down. I mean, they, they asked me to write a book, the publishers, and I wrote 500,000 words. And they said, <laughs> oh, we only need 120,000. And editing it down, it was like repetitive castrations. I oh, mean, my babies were falling to the floor and oh dear but now i think it's pretty it's pretty tight it's very tight but that just sounds so painful um and <laughs> and i i don't want that to have to happen to you not even once much less repetitively i think that there is a, a fair amount of of kind of crazy that has gone on in the dog world and there's something you don't talk about in the book but i think it's germane to your insistence on our voice as humans who have language. And speaking of dogs, as being language learners, ESL, you talk about it repeatedly through the book, English as a Second Language. And somehow people have gotten so lost, and I, I do think that YouTube slash social media slash dog celebrities have contributed to a kind of mania for believing that there must be a plastic button, a tool, something that has nothing to do with human behavior or human-dog interaction that's going to make it all come clear. Won't be any work on the, on the part of the person, won't need any kind of practice with the dog. The dog will just have these buttons that have words that mean nothing to dogs but everything to people. The dog will touch the button, and that's what the dog wants and needs which has nothing to do with dog training or human-dog communication. I can't imagine how your hair must have been on fire seeing all <laughs> these, these buttons, these wildly expensive buttons. And each time I see them, I'm just horrified at the profound ignorance behind them, the ignorance of what, a, what motivates a dog, what makes a dog happy, and more importantly, what we want our dogs to do that make us content and happy. You talk about it a lot in the book, Ian, the idea of not worrying about what you want your dog not to do. And your first wife, Mimi, helps you understand this, but what do you want the dog to do and work on doing that instead? That seemed very logical when you first brought it out in your dog training years. And do you feel that kind of got lost somewhere in the process? Oh, yes. I mean, I asked this question repeatedly through the book. Um, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? And uh, did it work? And I think these two very simple questions, I mean, always as a kid, I never stopped asking questions. And so I don't look on this as ignorance in the sort of negative sense, like you're an ignorant person. It's just that a lot of people have forgotten to ask these questions about what are they doing? And so they just do it. Why? Because they were taught to do it this way and they don't give it a thought. So there's that kind of ignorance there. And that's true for reward training as it is with the use of aversive punishment. And I, I find that um, 
So with the re reward training was untouchable in the 90s. I mean, lure reward training, we would have 80 dogs off leash at an event, the canine games and under verbal off leash distance control. You know, it was magnificent. But then it drifted a bit as we lost um, instructions. So initially when shaping came in, they objected to luring, saying that's not pure shaping. And yeah, that's quite true. It's not. But it's the obvious, simplest way to do it. We give dogs instructions so they know what to do. But also the, the teaching of the ESL comes into play that dealing with the big elephant in the room, which is non-compliance and misbehavior. So I find some people think, oh, we must punish. The dog's getting it wrong. He's trying to diss us. You know, that aversive punishment is necessary. They don't ask the question, does it work? And obviously it doesn't, as evidenced by its continued and frequent and repeated use. Because by definition, a punishment reduces the frequency of the target behavior. Therefore, at the same time, it's reducing the very need for punishment. But what we see instead are leash jerks after leash jerks after leash jerks. So obviously it is not working. Therefore, it is not an aversive punishment because it's not fulfilling the definitional duty of punishment, but it is aversive. But, as you, also, outside, but you, also, you, know, you also say in the book, Ian, in, in, in teaching a kindergartner, you wouldn't, you wouldn't shame or hurt them in order to tell them not to do something. You would reward the thing they did well, but and the word shaping that you're using is a very, within the dog training industry, a normal word, but it's a very esoteric word for end consumer dog owners. In a minute, I'd like you to describe it better, but the punishment doesn't work, and, and you're saying, okay, punishing a dog clearly doesn't work because you have to keep punishing. But in the book, you make clear that punishment is not learning. It's not teaching. It's not training. It's just teaching a dog to shut down, perhaps avoid you, perhaps avoid the leash, perhaps be just a miserable dog who doesn't even want to try anymore. So I think it's almost gone the other way. The pendulum is always so quirky. It loves to swing wide. So now people seem to be asking people, like there's a capital P, obviously no one's all the same. They want to know, what does the dog want? What will make the dog happy? Which is not a human-dog relationship that's healthy. It doesn't work like that, right? I mean, that's the problem with the buttons. The dog wants to go out. The dog wants to go out. The dog wants to go out. Oh, bollocks. Dogs don't need to go out every 20, 30, 50 minutes. We all know how often dogs need to go out unless they're ill or ancient or little puppies. So don't you think that that's part of the problem is that people are trying not to punish but to do the opposite, to just let, let chaos reign? The dog's in charge? Um, yeah, I mean, those are, they needn't go together. I mean, I mean, let's just get to the nitty gritty. I mean, the notion of teaching a dog not to do things is, is actually a very difficult process, you know, cognitively, if you, yes. you think about it. Um, but when we're dealing with um, animals and, or pre-verbal children or non-verbal spouses, um, <laughs> the first thing we need to do is teach ESL so they understand our instructions, but most importantly, so we can use our voice as verbal guidance 
when the dogs leave the straight and narrow so we can tell them exactly what we would like them to do right now. And for the most part, that's uh, teaching the dog to understand a single word in each instance, like outside, because the dog was about to pee indoors, or chew toy, the dog's chewing on your slippers, or sit. That's my favorite. It is your because favorite. It instantly resolves about 90% of annoying behaviors that frustrate and upset people. So all you got to do is teach your dog to sit. And if he's, you know, playing agility in the living room, chasing the cat or chasing his tail or dashing out the front door or jumping up. Now, this is the thing I every year I would go to Barnes and Noble and look up and pull out every dog book there. And I would look up pulling on leash, house soiling and jumping up and jumping up was the worst. What they advised owners to do in the book was <clears throat> take hold of the front paws, squeeze the front paws, right. stamp on the hind paws, right. get in the chest, hit yep. it over the head with the rolled up newspaper yep. in England, flip it, you know, and all this stuff. No, why don't you ask the question, how would you like the dog to greet you when you come home? Because he's only doing what you've unintentionally reinforced since puppyhood, because right. you were too lazy to bend down and greet right. the dog at puppy level. His only crime was he grew. So do you want your dog to approach you, you know, tottering on his hind legs with a silver platter and glasses of sherry and say, oh, welcome home, owner, lovely to see you sort of thing? No. And I, I wait until the owner suggests, well, sit, I guess. I say that's a very good idea. In one word, you can communicate two pieces of information, stop what you're doing and sit. End of problem. And this is where, and my son really crystallized this thought for me. He says, so what you're saying in the book, Dad, that the very best punishment in the world is a lure reward trained verbal command. I said, yeah, sit, settle, shush, chew toy, outside, go to, you know. Yep. Um, and he sort of nailed it on the head. And that's what I'm trying to bring back, our voice to dog training, because their real importance is obviously cueing the behaviors we want so the dog knows what we would like him to do and they're mega motivating it to the max using rewards a million times more powerful than a food treat but our conversation our words come into play when the dogs err when they're not doing what you want them to do then ask the question then what do you want the dog to do then tell him to do it and when he does it praise him yes. now if that doesn't work reevaluate reevaluate how you were trying to teach him the meaning of come sit down roll over heel high five or what have you you know it wasn't easy it wasn't quick it wasn't effective and that's the whole point of going through the different reward training techniques that um some are better at others at doing different things like the dogs, I always, I mean, the dogs. The what about the people training. what about people who don't have the sense of how to patiently say the word sit and then wait for the dog to do it. People. They say it four it's times actually, in a row. They raise their voice. They sound crabby. They're frustrated. Or the person's body language is wrong. They're sort of bending over and yet asking the dog to sit when they should be upright. I mean, that kind of ignorance is what I mean. People just don't get it. That a dog has really good hearing. You don't need to yell and you don't need to repeat it five times and make them it, it sort of inured to the word. 
But the, the whole point about, you see, the pros and cons of different reward training techniques um, is the people. Why does it have to be quick? Because right. otherwise people may not devote sufficient time. Why does it have to be easy? Because owners are not usually trainers. They don't have their experience and expertise. So owners want it quick and easy. And by definition, it must be effective. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. And the other thing we've desperately lost for training, uh, and I brought it back for a while, is quantification. It used to be 40 years ago when I started this, every single person in my audience competed in obedience. They wow. knew what ineffective methods were or what failure was. And then gradually it changes now to from obedience training to companion dog training. So I brought back games because there's no more ruthless quantifier of did this work, like in musical chairs. If your dog lies down or if he walks off, you lose. Right. You don't go on to the next round. Right. And it's important because you can lose in life too. Your dog walks out the front door and doesn't sit when you ask him to and he gets killed by a car. And so we must quantify what we're doing you know, so we know how well our methods are work, working, so we know how to grow as a dog trainer. But also we now have proof of training to show to the owner. I mean, I, I love saying to an owner, remember when we started this, teaching a sit-stay and your pup wouldn't sit still for 0.2 of a second? Well, he just did a one-minute sit-stay and that took, oh, 25 minutes. Proof of training. Yeah. And we aren't doing this anymore. So owners don't know how to vet a trainer in the same way that, say, a breeder or trainer would vet uh, an owner. Or They're a house painter. Particular, so we're, the owner should too. Exactly. We're, we're, we're running low on time, Ian. And I just want to say that I think this book would be really valuable for the dog trainers, not just the dog owners. And then they could share it with the dog owners because – a lot of what we're talking about is esoteric and it's very fine-tuning, but I will say that that the book Barking Up the Right Tree, The Science and Practice of Positive Dog Training by the wonderful Dr. Ian Dunbar is something that belongs in your life and on your shelf, whether you're a dog trainer or a dog owner. Ian, thank you for being here and for the wonderful work you've put in your whole life to help us with our dogs. And thank you for asking me. It was good to be chatting again. I hope you enjoyed the show. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible, and I hope you'll try their products because they support my mission to entertain you with valuable information and advice. This show is supported by Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, where they create holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. Earth Animal makes a dazzling array of healing products for dogs and cats, as well as the innovative dog chew, No Hide, and the hybrid dry food, Wisdom, which is sometimes all that my picky Weimaraner Maisie will eat. The show is also brought to you in part by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two dedicated women who take human edible, ethically sourced ingredients to gently cook dog food that is then frozen in pouches and shipped right to your door. They founded and run their own company and answer to their own high standards without interference from venture capital investors. My dogs love it every single day.